You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Learn something new in every episode as we interview UNT faculty, subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our non-credit courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT Advisory Council President, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking today with Ollie faculty member Tom Tweedale. Tom is a longtime faculty member at Ollie, sharing his expertise of U.S. history. Tom is also a private flight instructor and one of the best dancers you'll ever have the pleasure to see. When Tom is not teaching dance or in the sky flying airplanes or riding on his motorcycle, I might add, he is often informing us of interesting facts of history from all over America. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. It's so wonderful to see you. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Well, one of your Ollie classes presented a trivia guide to the United States of America, including fascinating facts about the 50 states and their history. Okay, can you give us a little bit of insight into what guided you toward this interest and what this is about? Well, it was really kind of interesting. I was on a flight one night from uh, Fort Lauderdale to Kennedy. Beautiful night. We were over Hampton Roads at the entrance to Chesapeake Bay in Norfolk, Virginia. And my co-pilot pointed out the window ahead to a bit of lights, and he said, what's that town up there? And I said, well, that's Baltimore. And he pointed one closer to us, and he said, what's that? And I said, it's Washington, D.C., and he pointed straight out my window to the lights we could see out to, out to the left. And he said, what's that over there? And I said, Richmond, Virginia. And it suddenly occurred to me, we're at 33,000 feet over Norfolk, Virginia, and we can see both Washington, D.C. and Richmond, Virginia, the two capitals in the Civil War. Wow. They're 116 miles apart, and it was four years before either one was finally captured. And it was when Richmond was finally captured in early April of 1865 that that led to Lee and Grant meeting at Appomattox Courthouse the next week, Palm Sunday, as a matter of fact, and uh, ending the war. Uh, So oddly enough, I had also been reading uh, an article in the Dallas Morning News about the fact that San Antonio had just been designated the 10th largest city in the United States. There were three in Texas that were in the top 10, Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio. And I just happened to be flying over as an airline pilot. I was flying over San Antonio coming up from Corpus Christi to Dallas. And uh, I just made a quick announcement that San Antonio is now the 10th largest city. There are three in the United States. Houston is fifth, and uh, Dallas was ninth. And a few minutes later, a flight attendant came up, and she said, we've got a passenger back here who's wondering what was number four. Well, everybody can get New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. What was number four? I couldn't remember. It was Philadelphia, I found out later, but I couldn't answer the question. And so I got started looking, uh, looking it up. 
And every time I'd find an interesting tidbit of information, it would lead me to something else. And an hour later, I finally come back to the original thing I was looking for. And I started writing the book, Your Tribute Guide to the USA. You have a book. Oh, yeah. That's the name of the book. Wonderful. And uh, I wrote it in a conversational style to be used by airline pilots to make in-flight announcements around the country. And I, I just I wanted to know more about uh, about the things I was seeing out the window, and landmarks and, and points of interest, that kind of stuff. Well, you have quite an extensive background as a pilot. I just feel like I have to mention that. You've been to a lot of different places that's given you insight into a lot of geography and a lot of history from around the world, haven't you? I have been so blessed. No other word for it. I was four years old when I first started telling my mother I was going to be an airline pilot, and I never set my sights on anything else. When did you first fly? I first flew when I was 13. I was a, a Boy Scout. I was working on my aviation merit badge. My dad worked for TWA in Kansas City. And uh, he had a friend who was part of a flying club. Dad wasn't a pilot. He was a systems engineer. And uh, he had a friend who was part of a flying club, and he got him to take me out one Saturday morning, and I got to fly that airplane. You couldn't have shot me down with a howitzer for six months. I was so high, I got to fly an airplane. And when I started learning to fly, I was uh, when I was 20, and I got the job as an airline pilot at 21. Two days less than 10 months after I got my private license. Have you flown for a variety of different companies? Well, I flew for four different airlines, and I have flown for several different companies as a corporate pilot. Uh, I've flown all over the world. I've trained pilots all over the world. I've been based all over the world. I was based in Cairo. I was based in Brussels, uh, Guam, uh, Puerto Rico, South America. I have been just so blessed to get to do that. And I've probably got 19 students right now. I had two students this morning. I've got another one this afternoon after we're through. You just so, kind of fit me in between those I just, flights. I schedule whatever I need to do you whenever. You flew in here, and now you're going to fly right back out. That's right. It just, it's just been a great, great experience. That is awesome. What is your favorite thing about flying? Looking out the window. <laughs> I tell my students, when we take off for the very first time, and uh, we're maybe two or 300 feet in the air uh, on that very first takeoff, and they're up in the window looking out. I tell everyone, I'm, you're doing exactly what I want you to do. Even after doing this virtually every day for 57 years, my number one reason for coming up here is to look out the window. I've never lost the sense of wonder mm. about flight. That is terrific. And that practice of noticing what you see out the window led you to your interest in history, or at least into putting something together about it. It did, that. yes. Uh huh. The one thing I left out on my career, like I said, I've dreamed about this. When I was a teenager, if I wasn't paying attention to what was going on around me, you could almost bet I was dreaming about flying a big <laughs> airplane. And once I got the job, I discovered that the reality was way better than the dream. Who can say that? Who can say that? People dream about doing things all their lives. They finally achieve it, and they realize, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Why did I want to do this? Now what do you dream? 
Knowing you, Tom, though, I have a feeling that wherever your life has taken you, you've had a sense of appreciation and wonder for whatever it is. Well, uh, I'm a broken record about it, but I have been so grateful to have my job that it just spills over to everything else. That's great. Yeah, you truly are a, a lucky person, and I think we all need to realize when we have those fortunate things happen in our lives. Now, when you go back to that 50 states and, and the interesting facts and you teach that, what is it that you want people to take away from it? A lot of what I say is based on my having been there. I make a lot of it personal to explain this is where this is and you'll see this and this waterfall or that view from this mountain or the, the looking down into the Grand Canyon or looking up from the bottom, whatever. I always try to make my presentation so that the person who's listening to me gets the feeling that I wish they'd been there with me. I also know you have a strong interest in hiking and being oh, outdoors. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the Grand Canyon, and I know you have been down there, Mm -hmm. and you've been up high. You've Mm -hmm. been up in the sky. That sort of appreciation, has that drawn you into the history of the area, of wherever you are? Yeah, a lot of it. When I was in school, I hated history. (laughs) History, to me, was nothing more than just an endless stream of of numbers, names, and dates that didn't amount to a hill of beans to me. They didn't relate to each other. Now, I'm telling a story. When I make one of my history presentations, I'm telling a story about what happened and what happened next and what happened, and then this person did this. And, uh, uh, I'm telling a story. I have a lot of people frequently comment on the fact that I make a three-hour presentation with no notes, and all of it with details. But the thing is, I'm telling a story, and I'm remembering what happened in what particular order. Uh, And I just get such a kick out of doing that. And my favorite thing in the Ollie presentations is when the people who are listening to me get this grin on their face and then started scribbling in their notes frantically because they're trying to remember what I just said. That was the aha moment, the, the punchline moment of what I was talking about. Don't you love that rabbit hole that research takes you into? As you mentioned, when you go to look up something, you see something else, or you see a book referred to, or Uh a person referred to, and then you go down that next step. Isn't that a wonderful rabbit hole to be into? Oh, it's just crazy. I I started at at 10 o'clock in the morning, and at 4, I'm still working on something. I haven't got back to the first thing I was looking at at 10. And I have got so many, I've got notes scribbled everywhere. It, it's just been a great, great uh, education. It really has. We talk about the fact that lifelong learning keeps our brains fresh. It lays down new synapses. And I know the kinds of things that you do absolutely have to be just a great model for people who want to keep themselves not only entertained and interesting, but also to help their brains, do their brains a favor. And I think it also enhances our creativity. I think you're right. Uh, My mother, when she was probably in her late 40s, early 50s, used to talk a lot about not wanting to be a burden to my sister and me as she got older. And 
probably was going to lose some of her faculties. Well, she died in uh, 2015 at 95, and she was still working Sudoku puzzles and crossword puzzles every day. Wow. Not, not the really complex ones, but, uh, uh, but they challenged her. Uh, and she had an unbelievable sense of humor, and uh, she was just so full of life at 95. That's great. Uh, and I think the, it was her intent to do that. Absolutely. I think we, we have a lot to say about that. I know some things take over and they might make it difficult, but oh, I think we can certainly guide the way that our aging happens mm -hmm. to us. Now, I was at one of your lectures you gave. It was very interesting. It was an afternoon with our first ladies. Mm -hmm. And I love the way you picked out these facts about the women that I had heard the names and I had heard them mentioned primarily, oh, this was a president, this was a first lady. But I love the fact that you pulled these interesting facts about the women and they, they really stood very much on their own. Can you think of some things that you found surprising or interesting when you researched that topic or any other? Yeah, I had, I had three that I can think of. One, actually, the first two are related without really being related. Uh, Martin Van Buren, our uh, eighth president, he was elected in 1836. He was Andrew Jackson's second vice president, elected in 1832. Uh, he was elected to the presidency in 1836. Martin Van Buren was a native of Kinderhook, New York. Kinderhook is a Dutch community. Van Buren was our first president born an American citizen. All the others had been born British subjects. So he was the first born an American citizen. He was also the only president whose native language was not English. It was Dutch, because Kinderhook was a Dutch community. Well, he and his wife, whose name was Hannah, she was also a native of the Dutch community. So when they were in a public setting and they didn't want people to eavesdrop over their conversation, they just spoke to each other in Dutch. <laughs> and nobody ever understood what they were saying. Uh, oddly enough, our current day pundits will talk about somebody uh, going into the vice presidency as a stepping stone to becoming president. Well, Martin Van Buren was the last sitting vice president elected to the presidency until George H.W. Bush in 1988. Well, that is 152 years. Wow. The other related but unrelated was Herbert Hoover. He and his wife, Lou, they met as students in the engineering school in Stanford University. They graduated in 1901. And they got married right after they graduated, and they moved to China. The Boxer Rebellion broke out. They were in China for several years. Well, they learned to speak Chinese. So same as the Van Burens, when they got in a public setting where they didn't want people to uh, eavesdrop over their conversation, they spoke to each other in Chinese. She was the better, uh, she had better uh, skill with Chinese than he did, but uh, they did just fine. I thought that was really an interesting that they both spoke a foreign language. Very much so, and she must have been very, very bright. Not only did she speak Chinese better than he did, but she was in the engineering school. Oh, yes, uh-huh. In she graduated in 1901. Mm -hmm. That can't have been a very uh, common feat for oh, a woman no, it at was that not. time. No, it was not. They were very much soulmates. They worked off of each other, worked very well together. They had a great relationship. Uh, the third one was actually not a wife of a president. Our 15th president, 
James Buchanan, preceding Lincoln. He was elected in 1856. He is our only bachelor president. He was never married. Well, up to that point, most of the wives of the presidents were responsible for social activities around what was then known as the president's mansion. Uh, it wasn't called the White House until the uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, administration, uh, 1901 to 1909. It's been called the White House ever since. But since he wasn't married, Buchanan wasn't married, he employed his niece, Harriet Lane. She was 27 years old in uh, 1857 when he was inaugurated. She was uh, very attractive. She was outgoing. She, she planned really great social activities at the President's Mansion, and uh, everything was really successful. Everybody enjoyed the experience. The news media uh, reporters started referring to her as the nation's first lady. Uh, they couldn't call her the president's wife, which all the other had been referred to, so they referred to her as the, uh, the nation's first lady. Oddly enough, during that time, the U.S. Navy had built a new warship, and they christened it the Harriet Lane. And it was that ship that fired on Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor to begin the American Civil War. Isn't that Harriet fascinating? Lane. And uh, this wasn't the first time the term First Lady had come up. It had actually come up almost 10 years before in 1849 when Zachary Taylor delivered the eulogy for Dolly Madison, uh, who had just died in 1849. Uh, her husband had died 13 years earlier in 1836. James Madison was her husband, of course. He and Zachary Taylor related. Taylor was second cousin. So he knew her very well when he called her the nation's first lady. So since then, the wives have all been referred to as first lady. So was that the first time that term was ever used? As related to the president, uh, yeah. yes. Interesting. Now, you also taught a class. You've taught a lot of classes, and we appreciate that. You taught a class on Texas history from the 1820s to the Reconstruction period. And what are some things from that time that most people might not know about Texas? Well, that's a little bit of an odd question for me to answer because I'm not a native Texan. <laughs> and as I understand it, all Texas school children go through Texas history of some kind. So it would be difficult for me to have found something that most Texans hadn't already learned going through school. But one of the things that I did find that I thought was really interesting was actually about Sam Houston. Sam Houston was the first president of the Republic of Texas, and he was also part of the delegation that, that declared independence from Mexico on March 2nd of uh, 1836, which was actually four days before the Alamo fell. It was not far away, but uh, it was not related at all. As a matter of fact, Santa Ana and his army had no knowledge of the Declaration of Independence, so they were not related. I've always thought it's interesting that I can remember the date of the Alamo quite easily if the dates are written numerically rather than spelled out. Because if you can remember that the, the year was 1836, the date was March 6th, 3 6 of 36. Oh, so that to me it just makes it easy to remember. I'm going to remember it now too. But uh, the, uh, the 2nd of March was also Sam Houston's birthday. He was born in 1893. 
So he was 43 years old in 1836. It was just coincidence. He was also the first governor of Texas once Texas was admitted to the Union in uh, 1845 as a 28th state. He was also the last governor at the time of the secession at the beginning of the Civil War. Secession was a very popular subject. Everybody wanted to secede, but he didn't. He, he did not support secession at all. And on the 1st of February, 1861, they voted 166 to 7 to secede, only second to South Carolina. He refused to support it, and they took him out of office, making it effective his birthday, March 2nd. Wow. It was just to rub salt in the wound. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting that all these ha happened on his birthday. Very, uh, very interesting. He was 70 when he died in 1863 in Huntsville. Uh, that was in June. He'd had quite a life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything you're interested in now? Are you researching anything in particular or any, any rabbit holes you've decided to go down lately? I'm really not uh, researching anything right now. I'm reading a book on Samuel Adams and his activities during the American Revolution. Great book, fascinating book. Uh, it's just, like I say, I've got a book all the time. I'm reading something all the time. I've also been thinking, uh, I haven't figured out how to do it yet, I probably never will, but I would, I've been trying to figure out a way to create a presentation for Ollie on Sudoku solutions. Oh, how interesting. I, I do probably, I do at least 10 a day. And one of my favorites is a five-pattern puzzle where the corners are all common. The numbers in the corners are common to the, to the other five sets. And I, I can generally do one in about an hour. And I've been thinking about trying to put one together. I'm not sure how to do it where it would be logical and, and even useful. Yeah, but it's a great creative idea. I, I can tell from this conversation and from others that we have had, your mind would, works very well with numbers, doesn't it? Oh. You like numbers. <laughs> <laughs> you remember them. It's incredible. One of the funniest things, my birth date, my birth date is 012345. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> when I was hired by the airline, my employee number was given to me at random and it was a numerical palindrome in order 23432 <laughs> and my number with the FAA my pilot's license number is also a numerical palindrome and it's only two numbers 1661661 wow. just at random those two numbers came out yeah and I, I just see the relationship of numbers. I, I, I love numbers. Yeah. Uh, I can work square root in my head. I do almost all of my math in my head. I do very little. I don't own a calculator. Uh, I, just, I, I, I just enjoy math. Always have. I think most people could do math better than they do. Uh, they could understand it better than they do. They just don't want to. They don't enjoy math you got to want to to really get a, a good grip on it. But it's just one of the things I see the relationship in numbers. Well, I have always envied people who have that skill. I tend to go with words and pictures. Mm -hmm. And I have always thought how wonderful it would be to have that type of brain that works so well with numbers. Because there's so much of numbers in everything, in nature, mm -hmm. all of that. The uh, What is it? 
Fibonacci sequence. Yeah, Fibonacci. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so many things like that. I think that that would be quite an insight to be able to have what you have mm -hmm. and to be able to remember the numbers. That's important too. I can give you an interesting example. I was up at the Sherman Airport the other day and an airplane was, was uh, making a takeoff. He made his call that he was taking off. His number was 1234 Victor. Well, I was I was thinking it's kind of interesting that the numbers were in order one two three four, and it suddenly occurred to me that V is the Roman numeral for five. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether he had that had occurred to him or not. It may have been intentional. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. Now I'm gonna switch sides a little bit because okay. if anyone's ever seen you dance, they'll know why I'm asking this. Mm. I can't help but ask some questions about your dancing because you truly are a remarkable dancer. Well, and, you're too kind. Uh, well, I'm, I'm just saying a fact. And you and your partner, Anita, are so impressive. Tell us a bit about your interest in dancing. Where's that come from? How long have you done it? Why are you so darn good? <laughs> well, <laughs> oddly enough, back in the mid-1970s, I had a really good friend who was taking dancing lessons with his wife at a facility in Garland. At the time, I was living in a house trailer right next to Love Field, so I wasn't that far away from Garland. And for not nearly a year, they had been pestering me about coming to take dancing lessons. And I kept saying, boy, that's just what I need is dancing lessons. And I, every time he asked, I, I said, no, I'm not interested. Well, he finally called me up one night. I was at a particularly low period in my life. And uh, he said, we're having a party tonight after our class, and we can invite anybody to come. We want you to go. No, Dick, I don't want to go. Yeah, we want you to go. He would not get off that phone until I finally agreed to go. I went. I was there for four hours. They could not drag me on the floor one single time. I wouldn't go out to even try it. Not one time in four hours. But I got to looking around, and there, was, there were probably 300 people there. And I didn't see a single Fred Astaire or J Ginger Rogers. What I saw was a lot of people having fun. And I thought, well, there might be something to this. And I was signed up and in class the next week. They had ongoing class, eight weeks, and the very next week they start another eight-week period. And then another eight-week, another eight-week. I signed up for every one of them, and in six months they made an instructor out of me. Wow. I was so surprised to find that I thought it was fun, and that I thought I had a knack for you it. You do, obviously, in six months. That's impressive. The thing is, I was already teaching. Uh, when I started teaching people to fly, it was my opinion anybody can teach. Boy, yeah. did I find out in a hurry that is not true. That it, yeah, Just because you can do something well does not mean you can show anybody else how to do it at all, much less well. And when I started hiring instructors, um, I had a flight school at Love Field for several years. I had as many as eight airplanes at one time, so I, had, I was hiring instructors. And boy, I found out how hard it was to find people who could teach. But the thing is, if you can teach anything, you can teach everything you know. It's, it's a matter of having a teacher's understanding and ability. I can empathize. I can remember when I was in this stage trying to learn and how difficult this was and thinking, 
if the instructor had only told us this, mm-hmm. it would have made made it so much easier for me to understand and to learn. Mm-hmm. So I, that that's how I got started teaching. When I came up here to Denton to start building my house in 1976, I didn't know anybody up here at all. And I, I got a flyer from North Texas for their mini course program. And uh, they had a dance program in there. Well, I was already teaching in Dallas, but I thought this would be a great way to learn how to just learn other people, just meet some new folks. Find some dancing friends. I signed up for that class. It was a typical dance class. There were 21 of us in there. Four of us were guys, and everybody else was a girl. And the poor guy teaching the class was an English teacher, moonlighting, teaching the dance class with no partner. Oh, no. And I made up my mind I wasn't going to sandbag him. I was not going to get some cute little gal over to the side and show her some extra stuff because that wasn't fair to the teacher. I only wanted to do what he had shown us how to do. Uh, and he'd come along behind us and say, very nice. And he, yeah, well, very nice. And he figured out I had done this before, and I explained to him what I was doing. Well, he decided at the end of that semester to leave the school. And he recommended me as his replacement. Well, in the middle of the semester, now this was 1976, in the middle of the semester, somebody called me from the office here, the mini course office. She said, would you be interested in teaching uh, an extra course in ballroom dancing? I said, yes. And she says, okay, great. She says, can you also teach a country western course? Well, the truth of the matter was I'd never seen a country western dance, <laughs> but I was afraid if I told her no, it would be good for both. That's I wouldn't right. get to do either one, so I lied. I said, well, yeah, I can, but let oh, me do sure. it next fall. Yeah. I'm figuring I'll go, go take some lessons somewhere in the summer, and then I can teach it in the fall. Well, she called me back the next day, and she says, we really don't have enough people signed up for our ballroom class, but we got 38 already for the, <laughs> the country western. It starts in three weeks. Oh, my goodness. I called my partner who lived in, in the Grand Prairie, and she, I was dancing with her in Garland at the big class there. And I said, you remember one time telling me if somebody should ask us to do something I thought we could do, I should say yes. And she said, no, I don't remember telling you that that you did and (laughs) I just did. did. (laughs) And we've got a a country western class starting in three weeks. She swallowed her tongue three times. I flew the airplane down to Grand Prairie. We went out to a honky-tonk. And I'm looking over her shoulders. It's a Tuesday evening, not many people there. I'm looking over her shoulder and just following the people right behind her matching their pattern. And I figured out what the the two-step pattern was. And now I've got a problem. I've understood the two-step pattern. I can teach that in 15 minutes. I've got a seven-week, actually five-week, hour-and-a-half course coming up. I've got seven-and-a-half hours. What do I do for the other seven hours and 20 minutes? Right. I made up a bunch of steps. Oh, good for you. All that stuff that we do is stuff that I've made up. Oh, my goodness. And to this day, the people in the first class don't know we've never taught it before. That is The school didn't find out until about two years later. They all laughed about it. They just (laughs) got the biggest kick out of that fact. Uh, So I've been with North Texas now since 1976. Wow. Now you're still teaching dancing. Oh, yeah. In Denton. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had 100 people in our in our two classes this semester. Well, I have actually danced with you before, and I have to say, I wasn't sure 
what we were going to do. And you just had a marvelous way of telling me as we were dancing. I felt so comfortable. So I know your classes have to be phenomenal. Well, I teach lead, follow. Mm-hmm. It's very important for the, the couple to understand the guy has to lead. She has to relax and follow. And the problem is most of the women in our classes have grown up dancing with their uncles, their fathers, uh, their girlfriends, their sisters, the, the few guys that were willing to dance at that time. So they already have a fair sense of dance movement, dance step structure, beat, and all of that kind of stuff. And most of the guys in our class are there because they've lost a bet. Yeah. <laughs> They've finally been browbeat into coming to this dumb dance class. They're here. Now get off my back. I'm here. We had one couple one time I can think of in particular. We were talking to them at the end of the course. And uh, uh, they were a nice couple. They'd had a good time. They'd done a great job. And we had another class that was going, another course that was going to be starting up the next week. Uh, She told him in front of us, she said, well, she said, I really appreciate your doing this. I know you did this for me. We don't have to sign up for the next when I, I, I appreciate the fact that we've done this so far. And he said, oh, no, I've already signed us up for the next one. He found out it was so much fun. Yeah. And we've also had another couple. Uh, he's been going through cancer for several years. Mm-hmm. And uh, he told me one night a couple of years ago that they had been all over the Dallas-Fort Worth area trying to find dance lessons and that we were the very first to encourage them to have fun. Oh, that's so important. This is what I try to tell everybody. The number one reason to be out there is to just enjoy yourselves. Uh, I asked my classes on the very first night. I always ask them for a hand uh, of all the people who are using this class to embark on a professional dancing career. They all laugh. And, And I say, okay, it's a stupid question. Why are you here? You want to go out to a public floor and have a nice time without thinking you're embarrassing yourself. So we're going to show you a lot of interesting steps. Pick the ones you like. Throw out the ones you don't. Just enjoy yourselves. We will be at times, whenever we go to a public floor, we will see somebody on the floor. And I'll look at Anita and I'll say, I don't have a clue what they're doing. And we don't. The, whatever they're doing doesn't match the, the rhythm of the music. I, there's no discernible pattern to the step, but they're doing it together. And we always make our last observation, but they're on the floor having fun to the beat of the music. Amen Whether we that. recognize it or not is irrelevant. Right. Uh, so this is the one thing we encourage everybody to do. Just enjoy yourself on the floor. It is a great, great amount of fun, I have to say. And we were talking about learning the history and, and finding out facts. And it is a wonderful, wonderful thing for your brain. I think it was the New England Journal of Medicine found that dancing was the one activity that they could directly link to increasing your chances for not getting dementia. Hmm. And the other was, I broke my leg several years ago, and my orthopedic surgeon said, dancing was the best exercise I could do. 
Mm-hmm. So there's just so many benefits to it. You know, I find also I what got me interested in it was uh, there was an older couple that was getting out mm-hmm. to dance. They weren't even eating. We were at a dinner. They weren't even eating. They were having fun. And I guess she had won a series of dance classes at an auction, and the kids made him go. He didn't want to go. Uh-huh. And so they made, you know, if this is important to mom, you got to do it. So he went, and by the end of the evening, he'd signed up for, I don't know, a long series of classes because it was a great deal of fun. It, it really is great was. fun. And in, in our case, it has extended one bit farther. I've been part of the Denton Community Theater since 1982, 40 years. Uh, you may know Donna Trammell. To me, she is one of Denton's absolute treasures. She writes these incredible shows. She writes funny lyrics to popular music based on a common theme. She invites us to participate. We can come with as many dancers as we like. Last year, she did her first post-pandemic production, and she asked us to come join as well. We did our number And we had a a woman on stage with us who was singing a song before and after our dance number. And we were the only ones on the stage dancing. When she came to the pause in her number, we came out and we danced. And when we were through, we left the stage and she finished her number. I hadn't really seen all of this until the dress rehearsal. And I went to Donna uh, the next day before the performance began. And I said, it's occurred to me that our dance has absolutely nothing to do with Mother's Day. The music that we were dancing to had nothing to do with Mother's Day or the number that was on the stage. I said, it's occurred to me you just wanted us on your show. And she said, that's exactly (laughs) right. And somebody else had said the same thing. So that is so so flattering. It's such an honor uh, that she wants us to do that. That's a great community She claims that I've done every single show she's done in the last uh, 20 or 30 years, whatever that is. That's terrific. One last question before I let you go. Okay. Tweedale. That is not a name I have ever heard before. And when I was researching your background for our interview, I noticed there's a Tweedale, Scotland. Is that where your ancestors come from? Yes. Uh, As a matter of fact, it's odd. I went to Scotland several years ago, my first time to go over there just to visit. I love the country. I love the the brogue. I sit and listen to those people talk. I just pull up a chair and sit and listen to them talk. Uh, I just love that. It does have a beautiful uh, it, sound. It's just great. Uh, they have such a, a style. I was in Aberdeen, uh, Scotland, when I was based in uh, uh, Brussels. We were checking in uh, for at the hotel. And when I started my airline career, we'd check in for a, a layover at a hotel. The captain always signed in first, and he was already in the elevator on the way up to his room when the second one was signing in. Every once in a while, somebody didn't get a room or was way delayed. Uh, Well, I kind of think that's the captain's responsibility. So I always hang back, and I let everybody else sign in, and I'm the last one to sign uh, sign in for a room. That's Make great. sure everybody in my crew has been taken care of. 
and I did that in this hotel in Aberdeen. And this cute little gal behind the counter looks up at me and she says, is it yourself that's a captain then? <laughs> that's what I did. I laugh. I said, I laugh. See, I'm the captain. Yeah. I was on my way over and I was telling somebody that I was I was really looking forward to, to being in Scotland because my relatives are from Scotland. My grandfather came to, to the United States in, at uh, the age of 16. Uh, he grew up in Edinburgh. He married a woman who was from Pennsylvania, but daughter of two Scots. So my dad was a purebred Scot. Uh, that makes me 50%. Uh, and I was telling him, they said, well, what's your last name? Tweeted, oh, you're a region. And I, I, that was funny because it, they, they categorize everybody as a region or, or I don't know what else they had. Yeah. But I pronounced Tweeddale as a compound word. The mm. Tweed River is the border between England and Scotland, and a dale is a meadow on the river. I pronounce both words, Tweed Dale. Tweed Dale. Uh, most and people, there are two Ds. Oh, yes. Name. Oh, yeah, because it's a compound Dale. word. It's both right. words. Uh, I pronounce both Ds. Yeah. Uh, most people uh, replace the A with an E and call it Tweedale, or they pronounce both E's with an A, Tweedale. Some people put an S in it, Tweedsdale. Some people put an extra L, Tweedledale. Uh, uh, I've heard a lot of I'm different I'm sure you could keep varieties. a file of uh, all I, of the I different certainly could. Uh, but, but that's it. It's good. It's yeah. good to have such a unique surname. It is. And I want to thank you so much, Tom. You're a delight to speak to. And I thank you very much for all you do for Ollie and your interesting classes. I want you to work on that Sudoku and see what you can come up with. And uh, thank you so much well, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I love this school. I've, I've just enjoyed this school the entire time I've been with them. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Ollie faculty member Tom Tweeddale. Thanks for listening. The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast.